0: Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Steve. Just before we start the interview with Johnny Whitaker, just to remind everybody that he's coming up at Monster Bash this October 14th for the 16th, 2022. And it's a fun time for everybody up in Mars, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh. So, for those wondering more about Monster Bash, you can go back to my episode with ron adams which we talked about that in more detail but without further ado let's listen to the promo from monster bash
0: classic monster movie fans from across the nation have their sights set on monster bash this october 14th 15th and 16th 2022 it's the gathering of fans and professionals from every state for the event of a lifetime it's a celebration of horror and science fiction films with a special spotlight on the greatest horror comedies of all time like abbott and costello meet frankenstein hold on to your hats look at this guest of honor lineup ron cheney grandson of lon cheney From the cult classic Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Dracula himself, Sandor Vorkov, SCTV's Count Floyd, Joe Flaherty. From Family Affair and the mystery in Dracula's castle, Johnny Whitaker, zombie walker Jeremy Ambler from AMC's hit TV show, The Walking Dead, Monster Muppeteer Emmy Award winning Bill Diamond, TV horror host Son of Ghoul, Drac and Countess Corita and more. Meet and chat with all the guests. Enjoy an almost non-stop film festival. Life-size monsters. At shop over 100 vendor tables of the rarest monster movie collectibles. Monster magazines, DVDs, Blu-rays, T-shirts, and everything classic monsters. Quick, get on board with monster movie fans from across the nation at Monster Bash. October 14th through the 16th, 2022 at the Marriott, Pittsburgh North. Autumn's creepy classic festival. festival. Festival of stars, vendors, and fans just like you. Get all the details right now at monsterbash.us. That's monsterbash.us or call 724 238 4317.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast as we're gearing up for Monster Bash coming up this October 14th through the 16th of 2022. I know everybody's excited about it. Today today I'm joined by Johnny Whitaker, who's going to be at the Monster Bash. A lot of you might remember him from Family Affair, um, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, Mystery in Dracula's Castle. I remember him mostly for playing Tom Sawyer in Tom Sawyer. But he's not only just an actor. He's a director. He's a child advocate, a drug counselor, and so many other things, trying to help so many people out there. I mean, you can't just say enough about the person trying to help everybody around them. How you doing today, Mr. Whitaker?
2: Oh, please. Mr. Whitaker my dad. You got to call me John or you can even call me Johnny. Just nothing like uh, late for supper.
1: I won't call you <laughs> late for supper. <laughs> I- I'll call you John or Johnny. I might interchange between the two because we're so used to No problem.
2: <laughs> no problem.
1: Are you excited about coming to Monster Bash? Is this your first time coming there?
2: It's my first time at Monster Bash, but not my first time in Pittsburgh. Uh, I have some other friends that live there and uh, have done the Pittsburgh Comic Con a couple of times. But uh, Monster Bash, no. So um, it'll be fun. And because it's Monster Bash, um, I'm making sure to get some uh, pictures from um, my one scary film that I did, which was Steven Spielberg's second movie of the week, which is called Something Evil, where I play a child possessed. And that was one year before Exorcist came out with my friend Linda Blair.
1: I watched Something Evil and that was pretty cool because, um, one, like you said, Spielberg directed it. I mean, it's it's early Spielberg, so you can say, I and mean, this was the movie, what, after Duel was something evil?
2: Exactly.
1: What was it like working for Steven Spielberg back then? I mean, because, you know, do you remember?
2: Well, he was probably the youngest director that I had ever worked with at that time. Most all of my other directors had been well over 40 Or more, and the interesting thing about Stephen was that he was not afraid to. Well, he there's the one scene where my mother and I, she gets mad at me for not answering her, and she finds me in the uh, in the grape orchard, and uh, Stephen wanted something specific, and so he put the camera, I think it was an Aeroflex, on his shoulder and then held me like I was talking to my mom and he was shaking me with the camera like a POV of Sandy Dennis's, who was my mother, and then he did the same thing with Sandy Dennis. And when it came out, I thought it was a very interesting Uh, But he was the the camera operator uh, for that scene. And I guess he got credit for... I mean, I've always been in Hollywood where you don't touch something because it's somebody else's job. So, you know, I was always told not to do that. But, you know, it was just... That was the most interesting thing with with Stephen. And he was a very... Hands-on director, I think. Um, as I look back on it now, you know, fifty years hence um, or more, actually, he was kind of full of himself uh, because of Duel, and you know, he was a little bit. I could just. I mean, as I as I remember and look back on it as an adult. You know, I always respected and revered anybody that was older than I. But um, we—he was super nice. And uh, but as I look back on it and remember it, I would say that there was a little. I'm, I'm young and I'm doing the best, and I'm one of the best, which can cannot uh, go against that. He is one of the best directors
1: that's for sure and, and obviously he had that he felt that way at a young age and I know sometimes it could rub people the wrong way because some people have that confidence in themselves and some people look at it as um, ego or whatever. but he, he was obviously extremely confident in his ability and we can we can argue we can't argue with what happened later
2: exactly proof is in the pudding
1: and from what I read, Something Evil came out in 1972, so this is the 50th anniversary of it. So it's there. You go, Darren McGavin played your dad, and of course, yes, we all know him as I know him as Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and so many other things. What was it like? And in talking?
2: the Christmas Story?
1: Oh yes, the Christmas Story. Um, he
2: was really nice. I mean, Sandy Dennis and uh, Darren McGavin, both of them were super nice people. I did not know of Sandy Dennis's past. You know, I mean, you know, as a kid, you don't watch old movies or um, important movies necessarily. So I didn't know that she, you know, was in uh, the out-of-towners and um, other films that were very well acclaimed. Uh, And Darren McGavin, I had seen on um, you know different programs and thought he was a good actor and a nice person, um, but have nothing negative and just positive to to talk about Darren and um, you know rest in peace the two of them.
1: Yeah, I mean because really it's Sandy's movie with you, you know, and it's about the two of you. Is she crazy? Is this really happening? And oh, that stuff. right. Thing. I thought it was really good psychological um, drama. Uh-huh.
2: yeah it was it was um me and my family being very staunch mormon latter-day saints we had to think a couple of times before taking that role but you know the the end product is that love conquers the evil forces that may be and so you know My favorite part was looking over the banister and saying, be damned. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to wear red contact lenses that were... How was that? Well, I had to go and get... You know, I was only 11 at the time when we were filming it. And I had whatever the op myopia is that it where you can't see far and um so i was able to now finally see and where because i had glasses but i didn't like wearing them and then i got contacts and it was like the beginning of the soft contact lenses because they had the hard ones for about 10 years but this is now the soft contact lenses. And I was one of the first young people to get to wear them.
1: And you're finally able to see.
2: (laughs) Very good. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, I enjoyed the movie. And for those that haven't seen it, you know, you should seek it out. It's definitely a fun movie to watch. Well, I shouldn't say fun. It's a good movie. It's not really like a comedy.
2: (laughs) No, it's not necessarily fun, but it is a thriller and uh, kind of eerie, spooky.
1: So I'm a fan of the um, '70s slow burn movies, and so not and nowadays everybody's expecting more of um, the quicker to get to get to the point type stuff. And I like it where the characters are all developed, like this one was. Right. But we kind of jumped the gun a little bit because you're talking about something evil, and I figured we might as well just go right to it, you know. And uh,
2: sure, well, you know, because of of Jeepers Creepers in the Monster Show, you know, gotta gotta pull that one out. Oh, oh,
1: exactly. I, I, I mean, the, the movie I know they're all excited about is Mystery in Dracula's Castle because a lot of them are monster kids that grew up and were familiar with the role that you played in Alfie where you're filming your monster movie, you know, and, and this is your big thing. And so I, I know a lot of them are going to be drawn to Mystery in Dracula's Castle. as um.
2: I'll have to get some of those photos too.
1: So – Speaking of mystery in Dracula's castle, what was it like doing it? Cause that was a Walt Disney um, production.
2: Yeah, that was my last Disney film. Um, and I did them all basically from, uh, 71 to 72. And, um, Mariette Hartley played my mother and she's just beautiful and she's a beautiful human being as well. And, uh, Scott Colden played my brother, and uh, when it came time for me to do uh, the Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, I was actually one of the producers and got to help in casting of my brother. So, you know, as these young boys passed by me, which doesn't sound really, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> But as the young men, young boys paraded past the producers and uh, you know, we interviewed them and read with them all. Um, Scott came in and hey, Scott, we haven't seen you. And you know, I said, there's no question, Scott. And I already have a positive chemistry. I think that's the one and they agreed and the rest is history. And Scott's still a good friend of mine today. Although he's been very prolific, he's got six kids and I think he's got his first grandchild now.
1: Oh, congratulations to him, you know, it's always nice.
2: Absolutely, but, but um, filming that, uh, as it was my, my last Disney film, an interesting tidbit, as a, a child working in Hollywood, you have, in California, one must go to uh, school for a minimum of three hours a day, and total hours on the set cannot be over eight. So they only have five hours a day to work with the young people. And Disney got an exemption where if they would bring us in a couple weeks early, we would do three hours of school, And then an hour to bank, meaning that if they needed a banked hour, we could work four hours and only go to school for two hours, but use a banked hour. And so uh, Mrs. Seaman, who was our teacher, and Scott and I were um, there, and they were preparing for Walt Disney World and doing a lot of the uh, sets and props and um, whatever. And this one artist was creating the um, goddess for the um, Jungle Cruise. And it was all done in um, clay. And then they would, over top of the clay, would put the um, uh, um, fiberglass fiberglass that shrinks somehow Mm -hmm. so that everything that is there to the smallest minutest you know crevice or crease would get into it anyway the artist said to me hey Johnny you know that Disney is giving one for one stock options and I said what's a stock option you know I had no idea what that was well Walt Disney pays you your money, your, your wage, and then you turn around and give some of your wage back to the company. Then they give you that same amount in, um, they give you your amount that you've paid plus that same amount extra for having faith in the company. And I go, Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense. So I went to my parents and I said, On this movie, let's take half of the money. I was making about 15 grand per film, and I'd already done three Disney films. So I said, why don't we take half the money that I get out of this, put it into, and then buy Disney stock, and they will match that with that same amount. And so that would have been 7,500 shares of Disney stock because it was 99 cents a share in 1971. And then I would get another 7,500 shares, meaning I would have had 15,000 shares of Disney stock. Today, those 15,000 shares, if purchased in 1971, would be worth $50 million today. My parents said, No, 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 that is gambling, and we do not gamble our money. So,
1: well, what could have been, you know, it's a, it's,
2: <laughs> hey, I might have put it all up my nose, put it all in the pipe, and smoked it, you know. Yep. So, who knows?
1: Who knows? Memories of the movie. Do you have any memories of um, filming the mystery Dracula's castle?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> When we filmed it, the um, outdoor uh, lighthouse scenes mm-hmm. were all done in Malibu at Point Doom. And one afternoon, I saw when we were coming back from lunch, I saw all of the, you know, stagehands and lighting people with their binoculars looking down on the south side of Point Doom. And I, you know, somebody put the binoculars down, and I grabbed them, and I started looking, and everybody said, no, John, no! <laughs> and I thought, what's wrong? So I kept looking, and it was the nude beach that, um, was on the other side of, and you know, they were looking at uh, mostly men, but there were some ladies and, uh, you know, of course me being 11 or 12, didn't want my eyes to see things that they might not should.
1: I can, I can see them now like, no, no, he's going to tell his parents. No, exactly. Oh, that is wild. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is funny. Uh, how did you get started in the industry? What, what led you to become get into acting when you were a child? Was it something um, that you did maybe while you were at um, church or in school, or did your parents just have an idea?
2: Well, my mother um, majored in um, drama and speech in college. And um, my father's family, we sang, or he, they sang all the time in, in harmony. But we, you know, weren't a, you know, entertaining family, necessarily. But my three sisters, my three oldest sisters, had been learning three-part harmony. And my mother was the children's Sunday school chorister. And there was a song... Um, that was called I Am a Child of God. And my mother didn't have time to teach all of the children. So she taught one young girl and my sisters, and they would sing the the verse, and then my sisters would sing the chorus in in harmony. And then she'd sing the verse, my sisters, and she would sing the, the chorus. Anyway, she got the chicken pox, And I had been practicing, and I was the only other child that knew the words to the song. And so Sunday comes along, and I'm the one who's going to sing the words. So, the first verse, I get done perfectly without a problem. My sisters and I sing the chorus. Then the second verse comes up, and I start singing, and I go blank, and I forget but I just go ahead and make up the words. And some people knew what the words were, but they didn't necessarily rhyme or make any sense. But then my sisters were elbowing me like, no, that's not the right. Don't sing that. And it was like, leave me alone. There's people watching and just smile. And so I did. And then I got the third verse and, um, after the, the, um, services, uh one of the ladies of the congregation whose son had done a couple commercials, went to mom and said, You know, Johnny has a gift if he can, at three and a half years old, not get flustered in front of an audience of, you know, two hundred or so people in the congregation, you know, um, I think you should go take him to my son's agent and um see what could happen. So my mom did the next, you know, they set up an appointment. We came in and I went on my first audition that day and it was for an OK used car commercial which was Chevrolet OK used cars. And um I got the role. And uh so, you know, started working. Uh, of course I couldn't read, but my mother helped me learn my lines. Then I did a uh, series pilot with Joan Blondell and um, Crenna. Um, um, Richard? And Richard Krenna, called And Baby Makes Three. And I played this little boy who was the uh, bat boy and had some big lines and, you know, did a pretty good job. Uh, then I was the original Scotty on the uh, general hospital. Then I went to uh, Northern California and did a film called The Russians Are Coming. The Russians Are Coming with Brian Keith. And he and I played ball after work in the parking lot. And um, he said that he wanted me or told my mom and my agent that he would like me to be a part of his new series that he was gonna be a part of. But the original family affair was a 16-year-old teenager, a 10-year-old brother, and a six-year-old baby sister. But, uh, so, Bryant had uh, specifically requested that I be seen at least the day that they were doing the, um, uh, uh, the on-screen screen test. And so I was the only six-year-old boy with all of these 10-year-old and 11-year-old boys. And they put me with the different girls. And when Anisa Jones and I got together, they said, wow, look at this. This is Hollywood magic. Stop the presses. We're going to change the 10-year-old boy and the six-year-old girl to six-year-old boy-girl twins. And the rest is history.
1: And a smart decision that there is, too. And when you see the people looking good together, it's like, hey, if, you know, this is what the um, script says. We can change the script. Let's go with what we got, which is right in front of us.
2: Exactly. And, I mean, that's, that's Hollywood. That's the way that the magic happens. They understand how that magic works.
1: And I'll say, obviously you and uh, Mr. Keith got along. You and Brian Keith got along well because Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. He enjoyed playing ball with you before it ends. So you two already had a rapport. And uh, what was it like with Sebastian Cabot? Well,
2: interestingly enough, Sebastian and Brian were kind of polar opposites as far as their way of acting and um, appreciation for the craft. Brian was, you know, playing cards with the guys and then, oh, 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 I got to run on to the set. And then it was Brian as Uncle Bill, but, you know, it was Brian Keith. His character was very much who he was. Uh, Sebastian, when... They would ask, you know, we ask him to, you know, play or whatever. He says, the actor prepares. If you children would like to run your lines, I'm happy to be of assistance. But we do not dilly-dally. So Sebastian was Mr. French as well. <laughs> However, uh, Brian did not like publicity and all of that and whenever there was a newspaper or you know something of publicity Sebastian ran to make sure that the children were being seen by him and with him so he would then read us uh Winnie the Pooh or something like that but you can't get any better than having Sebastian Cabot read you Winnie the Pooh.
1: I'm not going to argue with that. There, I could just imagine, you know, having them do that too. That would just be really cool. But it's, it's. I find it funny how they were similar to their roles in the TV show in real life. So that's kind of funny, right? I had the fortune of being able to interview Kathy Garver prior to you about about a year ago, and she was lovely and everything. What was it like working with her as your older sister?
2: Well, Kathy was actually. Over twenty-one, uh, she was playing a sixteen-year-old, but she was well over that. And she wanted to spend more time with the adults, which is fine, you know. But whenever we were doing something fun, she wanted to do that with us. So that was that was part of the fun, um, and you know, we had uh, you know positive interactions.
1: Well, that's good. And of course, you had Anisa Jones, you know, playing your sister, your twin sister, and you got right now on the show,
2: yeah. Anise and I were closer in age, although she was almost two years older than I. She did not grow much beyond her five, five, one, five, two at the most. And I was growing, and you could see that Buffy's was staying shorter than Jody um, in the later uh, uh, season. But her brother was my age. She had a younger brother who was, uh, I think, about my same age. I would go over to their place on the weekends every once in a while, and they lived right off of the beach. So we would play in the beach and um, got to know know, her family and, and be there a few times. Real, her mother was a little different. Her mother was a staunch atheist and would not allow her children to hear anything about religion or God. And in school, uh, Mrs. Deeney, who was our teacher, was specifically told that any discussion on religion is not allowed and um, that it should not be done. And so that was, anyway, part of that situation. We know later on, of course, Anissa passed from an overdose of quaaludes and alcohol and other undigested um, ball of, Hills. She was 18 at the time. I was 16. We had not really communicated for at least three or four years. I know that her mother had talked to Kathy Garver, Kathy Garver Sissy, and had her come and talk to Anissa because she was getting in with the round crowd. Um, and I don't really know what happened there, but, uh, I, I believe that, you know, she was trying to help. I was doing the Johnny Whitaker show, which was a, uh, family variety show that my younger brother and sisters, uh, and I would take around the Western, uh, Southwestern United States, uh, in, well, including Idaho and Utah we were in salt lake city when i was watching good morning america and rona barrett said anisa jones buffy of family affair was found dead in a and a home in oceanside california on saturday afternoon and you remember her as Buffy. Now that was the first time that I'd heard. And of course my heart sunk. I immediately called Les Kaufman, who was the uh, publicity director for family affair. And uh, he was at uh, Paula's home, Paula and Paul, her brother. um, And he was consoling them and, uh, talking with them. I got patched into, uh, you know, in a three-way call, however they did it back then, um, with uh, Mr. Kaufman, who, you know, let me know that, you know, what had happened and gave me a little bit better information. And my condolences to Paul and Paula, And um, just said that no information is known about any service that will be held. And I said, well, you know, just keep me informed and please give my love and best wishes to Paul and Paula. To my knowledge, there was not a memorial. Um, May have been, uh, you know, ashes out into the, the ocean or something. I don't know. I was not invited and no one that I know, uh, was. So, um, but that was, uh, a scary time.
1: That had to be a, a terrible thing to go through losing your, your, um, screen sister, so to speak, but still you guys were close for a number of years during the show. And
2: yeah, we were best friends and worst enemies for five years. Now as any young six to 11 or eight to 12 year old kids would be. And, um, you know, friends and, and, uh, enemies all at the same time.
1: Now, it, it's an interesting bridge that we have to go from that to this, but, uh, one of the movies that I did watch for you that I never knew you were in until I was researching your background, but I, I wanted to watch because of the actors that were involved in it. Besides yourself was the littlest angel.
2: Well, I was the star of The Littlest Angel. Yes. And um, we did that in the early 68 or 69. I think it came out Christmas of 69. And so we probably filmed it in, it was winter, but it was like January, February of 69. 69 and a, what they call a 90 day wonder, which is the, the movie of the week or the, you know, it's a, a 90 minute special. Uh, and this was now with uh, a Hallmark hall of fame. And they were kind of the main producers of the show. Anyway, they, um, brought me in as Jody from Family Affair because I was just a little angel and they thought I was the perfect littlest angel. Fred Gwynn played my guardian angel. Cab Calloway was the uh, welcoming uh, choir director. Uh, E.G. Marshall played God. Lots of uh, Tony Randall and uh, Connie Stevens, a very pregnant. Connie Stevens with her last child. She played the flying mistress who taught me how to fly. But a great cast and uh, a wonderful the music was really great. Lan Oken was the music director and the um, uh, musical genius behind all of those and he unfortunately just passed about a year ago But and I had been with him a uh, short time, about a year earlier, uh, and then COVID hit and nobody was going anywhere. But uh, great music, and um, I'd like to see it redone and, uh, you know, brought back.
1: I think that'd be cool. And then he can have you play God as, a, as like a hobby. Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just just think if for those that know the old original show or the 1969 version, they'll be like, oh, it, it all makes sense. And uh, but Fred Gwynn and you were a, a lot of lot of scenes together. And oh yeah, I love Fred Gwynn. What was it like working with him? That was one of the reasons I picked it because I was like, oh, Johnny Whitaker, one, your lead, your lead, and two, Fred Gwynn's in it. And I'm like, whoa, Fred Gwynn. Gotta watch
2: this. Yeah, I, mean, I I knew who Fred Gwynn was because of the Munsters, and Butch Patrick, who was Eddie Munster, was a you know a companion of mine, a, a friend, especially because Mary Grady, who was both of our agents, you know, we would go out on the same audition sometimes. But uh, you know, our mothers knew each other. He was in Family Affair a couple of episodes, and. Um, because he was in the Munsters. Of course, I knew his work and, uh, but of course the Munsters was pretty famous and uh, loved to watch it and uh, got to meet Mr. Munster, you know, and, um, but he was a gentle giant. Um, I believe he has, a few children uh, my age, or or maybe younger, maybe older, I'm not exactly sure. But very kind, a very giving actor, and uh, just a real positive, fun time. Uh, The only problem was, we were there during one of the worst winters in New York. And, we had been rehearsing and preparing on stages that were not being used on Broadway for all of the scenes that we were preparing because we only had 72 hours at NBC Studios Brooklyn to do The Littlest Angel. And that meant that a... 18 day wonder had to be filmed or taped with chroma key blue which was a new uh, the chroma key was a new video aspect in 1969 and so there were going to be a lot of tears and problems that the camera people had to work with and we had three cameras at all times. One was on a box that just blew smoke and another one in the clouds. And then the cameras that we had, a right and a left camera, and they sometimes had the middle camera, but they always had, for every scene, they had the three cameras. And when we were rehearsing, they would bring in the cameraman to rehearse with us so that they would know where they were supposed to be at what time so as we did this you know basically in what less well in two days 72 hours uh no three three days but the first day uh you know it was eight o'clock and we got home at like 10 p.m and then the second day. And there's supposed to be a 12-hour turnaround. But um, the next day, we were there at 8 a.m. and worked till 2 a.m. And then the next day was uh, 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. And I was told that I could not have any milk or ice cream for those two months that we were rehearsing. The director, Joe Layton, the music director, promised me that they would get me ice cream the minute we rapped. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, the only place that was open was the Chinese food restaurant, and all they had was sherbet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, sherbet was better than nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I'd had my fill of sherbet because I could eat that.
1: Oh. Well, that, that would be, that, that would be kind of a, a bummer, but, but I guess the next, well, later that day, you finally got your ice cream, I'm sure.
2: Yes, I did. I did.
1: But that, that uh, man, 12 hour, oof, oof, dude, that's, especially cause you were very young. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's. Yeah, long. I was
2: nine years old. It was, it was child, um, child cruelty. It was human cruelty, but you know, looking back on it, I survived it, so It wasn't too bad.
1: I'll say, but it was, was, it's a very enjoyable movie. And again, a lot of people don't realize it's out there. I think, you know, from 1969, the littlest angel, and they got to go see it. It's, 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 it's readily available and it's free. So it's
2: most of the time. Yeah. The, the, um, video quality is not so good if you get the free one. And if you do buy it, it should be better because I have some good quality ones or better quality, I should
1: say. Yeah, I will say that, that when I watch the one, you can you can tell the print, whatever the version, the copy they got was not the greatest. But I'm, as you, we both grew up in those times where we had to use the rabbit ears and the aluminum foil, and uh, it, do- <laughs> it doesn't bother me too much. It, it makes me reminisce even more about them. If I would have sold this when I was growing up. The good old days. The good old days. When
2: there was... Golden age of television, ABC, NBC, CBS, and a couple of local television stations and maybe uh, some UHF stations.
1: If you if you play the aluminum foil and, and tilted it just the right way, you got those extra stations. Exactly. Now you got to play Tom Sawyer, the musical version, and I just remember seeing that growing up and just enjoying it, and I got to revisit it again, so it was kind of one of those – Moments where, okay, I'm revisiting the movie I saw when I was a young, young lad. How's it going to hold up? And I still enjoyed it a lot. So it was, it was. you were wonderful in it.
2: Well, I just came back after the 4th of July for the 50th anniversary of the making of Tom Sawyer. Next year in April will be the 50th anniversary of the release of Tom Sawyer. But we, we went back to Arrow Rock where we filmed and it was super fun. Got to see some people that I hadn't seen for 50 years and um, reminisce. And, you know, I was the grand marshal of the uh, parade and uh, it's a beautiful little town uh, right in uh, well, right. It's on the Missouri River it's not on the Mississippi River but it's on the Missouri River just um, outside of Marshall Missouri, which is the biggest city next to it or kind of Kansas City or uh, Central Missouri is also you know, it's right there between uh, Columbus Columbia and uh, um, Kansas City, Missouri.
1: Man, that's pretty good that they had you come back and be the grand marshal for it because it's, I don't know, it's it's a fun movie, has musical elements with it. And again, you got to work with another actor who I just loved in a lot of different things. It uh, sometimes doesn't get enough credit with the current generation, Warren Oates.
2: Yeah, Warren Oates was um, a good old guy and he played the drunk Muff Potter. And uh, we got some good scenes in together, and I think he was filming something else because he was like kind of came and left, came and left, but uh, was a real fun guy and taught me a few tricks of the trade, you know, just a, a, a fine man, a fine actor. And then, of course, Miss Celeste Holmes who played Aunt Polly, who uh, is an Academy Award winner and a beautiful lady who passed, unfortunately, at 95, of an overdose. Her husband, who's still a very good friend of mine, Frank Basile, was asked by the doctor to give her some medication uh, while in the hospital. And then when she left, when, when he left, the nurse came in and gave her that same medication, which, you know, was wrong. And uh, unfortunately, she died of an overdose. And then, of course, um, Jodie Foster, who played um, Becky Thatcher, she, um, we had played the summer before in a Disney film, Napoleon and Samantha, it was tons of fun to be in Oregon. We were in kind of eastern Oregon to do that film with uh, a big lion. It was tons of fun. And then the next year, we're working again um, as boyfriend girlfriend, Tom and Becky.
1: Yeah, because you guys got engaged during it. Because you know, if you kiss, you're you're, you're engaged.
2: You're engaged. Yeah. Well. All you have to do to be engaged is say, I love you. And then you kiss and you're engaged.
1: You're correct. I stand corrected. Well, you, re- you really remember this movie well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, there's one scene that I did 107 or 114 times. I can't remember that many takes. And uh, I've never forgotten those lines still today. And Aunt Polly says, and so what ha- What did happen? I said, well, uh, you know, I was walking past uh, the widow's house, the Witter Douglas's house, and all of a sudden I heard a, a scream and a yelp for help from the top floor. Well, what could I do? I had to run up there and see what was wrong. Aunt Polly says, and what was wrong? Well, there she was, lying stretched out on the floor, must have felt something, and a bone sticking right out of her leg sticking right out of her leg. Yeah, well, I had to run clear across town to fetch Doc Robinson. He's up there right now, sewing up the poor widows stitch with stitches. She must have needed 50 stitches, 50. Yeah, but I sure did do a whole lot of, uh, I sure worked up a big appetite doing all that running and chasing. And as I say that, I look over and there is the widow Douglas sitting in the chair at dinner in my chair, eating my food, and I know I'm caught. But <laughs> so we did that scene a hundred and seven times because I did not get the right double take until one of the later scenes or the later shots.
1: Man, that is, I remember that scene too because you're. you're it was a great com- comedic goal because the movie already established that she's downstairs. So once you start saying all that, it's like everybody knows, oh, this is not going to go well for Tom. (laughs) (laughs) As does Aunt Polly, because she knows this is, oh, he's just throwing out a whole bunch of stuff. And she plays it so well. She's like, "Uh uh-huh, really?
2: (laughs) Really? 50 stitches.
1: (laughs) Let's go downstairs. That was was great. That was great. (laughs) What was it like working with Jeff East as Huckleberry Finn?
2: Well, that was Jeff's very first film. Uh, He'd done some local plays and, you know, uh, et cetera. But uh, he was a newcomer, but, um, you know, worked like a pro. And uh, great work ethic and, you know, took some good suggestions. Just a great guy. We're still friends today, especially... Uh, he's living in in um, France right now um, and uh, married with a, a new wife and um, having a good time working there.
1: Well, that's good to hear. It's always good to hear when things are going well for people and that they're enjoying themselves, you know, because so many things, as, as you said already, so many bad things have happened to certain people. It's nice to know somebody's having a good time. Now, one of the things... I wanted to ask you about also was you you were a fixture for a couple of years and then with reruns, of course, as a Saturday morning show, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, you know, which we kind of alluded to earlier. You had Scott Colden come back. You know, you, you kind of helped pick him as your brother. But what was it like working on the Sid and Marty Croft show?
2: Well, I had seen Lidsville. My friend Butch Patrick was in it. I'd seen uh, Puffin stuff and, you know, I I was familiar with their work. And they had um, Butch, again, was my agent, was with my same agent. So my agent was well connected with Sid and Marty Croft, but they wanted me for the star of their new show. Um, And I got to get producer, not credit, but I got to do things like a producer. And I actually own five percent of the original segment and the Sea Monsters, so um, it uh, it was tons of fun. We did three three uh, seasons. One year, the second year, our studio blew up and was uh, uh, they had a big fire in in Hollywood, and so that put us back for, um, you know, about six months or so uh, for our second season. But, you know, I got to work with Mary Wicks, uh, who was a great actress and a good friend. And um, Rip Taylor, who also was a a great friend and funny man and comedian and one of the... uh, one of the funnest people in the world, actually. And I was able to continue to be his friend up until his passing about two years ago.
1: What was it like working with um, Billy Barty and Sharon Baird?
2: Baird? Well, Billy, of course, was the puppeteer for Sigmund. He was inside the Sigmund costume. And um, so he was unable to show his acting prowess, uh, except through the gestures that he did in Sigmund. But uh, if you notice, Sigmund has a little pitch in his giddy up, and so does um, Billy Barty. And he was a sweet man, you know, I was taller than he was, but um, we are both LDS, and uh, so my mother and his wife got along well in talking about faith and religion. And he's got two beautiful young children at the time who were younger than Scott or I, but a really fun man. And Sharon Baird, one of the original Mouseketeers, she played um, Big Daddy and um, wonderful actress and great puppeteer. And then Walker Edmiston was the voice for Sigmund. Uh, and uh, he did lots of voices for lots of things. Sid Miller did the voice, the other voices that um, Walker didn't do.
1: I just love, I love that show. You know, growing up because I used to watch as you as you were talking about HR Puffin stuff, Lidsville, Land of the Lost, all those kind of things. You know, when you're on Saturday mornings, you'd have your pick. You know, and rotate through. Which what are you going to watch today? That kind of stuff, and it was. It was a fun show to do, and it had the Revival um, series not that long ago. Yes. yes, in
2: 2017, Sid and Marty Croft did a new Sigmund in the Sea Monster, this time starring David Arquette and another two boys who played Johnny and Scott. And David was a fun guy to, to work with, but I got to play kind of his nemesis, and the mayor of uh, Dead Man's Cove and also, um, h- again, his nemesis as a, another fisherman, that he was always scraping the bottom of the sea for stuff, and he believes that he saw uh, sea monsters, and we all laugh at him for believing in sea monsters.
1: Because sea monsters, as we all know, can't be real. Or are they?
2: Yep. Or are they?
1: Yes. Now, earlier on, when I introduced you, I said actor, director, child advocate, and drug counselor. And something. We're, we're recording this September 30th of 2022. There's some things you wanted to talk about that are particular to this month and other things about what led you to become a drug counselor?
2: Well, when Anisa Jones passed away of a drug overdose, I didn't know anything about drugs, but I knew that they were bad and just say no was kind of the mantra, uh, especially from um, Mrs. Reagan. What I then did was I, you know, kind of tried to slow down my role as far as my roles in television. I went on a mission for the Mormon faith to Portugal. I completed high school, started college. So I graduated college, went on a mission for the Mormon faith to Portugal, and came back, married a beautiful model, and um, moved back to, to Provo, Utah, where I would go to Brigham Young University to finish my degree in communications uh, with an emphasis in film and television as a director writer and unfortunately my wife decided to divorce me to marry the man who gave me my bachelor party and then I went back while I came back to California because there was no money and um, had to work as a computer consultant went back to Provo to clean up my my house that I had purchased that I was now renting out. And I met a a beautiful little four-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who wanted to play ball. And I jumped the fence and realized that I need to ask her mommy and daddy if I could play with her because I was a 27-year-old man. And, you know, here she is, a -a four-and-a-half-year-old little blonde-haired, beautiful girl. And so I met her mother... Uh, She did not have a father because her mother, um, unfortunately, was raped, and she was the product of that rape. But I started dating, thought that this was a beautiful little family I could have, dating in June. And in September, she said that she was pregnant and didn't want to keep the baby, and then... I tried to help her and do what I could, but she went ahead and took her own life along with my child. And um, that was the beginning of my atheistic phase where I said, you know, if this is the way God treats people that he's supposed to love and his children, that's not a God I want. So I became atheist and went to the dark side sex, drugs, rock and roll for the next 10, 11 years. And uh, my family had an intervention and I had to get clean and sober. Um, Got clean and sober and started working with other people. A friend suggested that I go back to college and get my certification as a drug counselor, which I did. And uh, 20 years later, I'm still a drug counselor and September is recovery month. So we just are getting out of recovery month, but August 31st is international overdose awareness day. And so if you go to JohnnyWhitaker.com, you can see my uh, video of lives lost and lives recovered and a celebration of such. And we've been doing this now for three years and um, the, hour and 17 minutes of our production uh, in which we name off the names of loved ones who have died due to overdose. And for the last um, 10 years, I've been celebrating seven friends of mine who died of an overdose. Of course, Anissa Jones, um, then Dana Plato, uh, then Lonnie O'Grady, um, Eric Douglas, who was Michael Douglas's half brother, uh, Celeste Holm, and then my friend, well, and Dana Plato's son, Tyler Lambert, uh, died 11 years to the day of his mother's death, uh, but through a drug enraged shooting spree in which he shot himself, um, but drug induced for sure. Uh, And then Celeste Holm, who was Aunt Polly, as we talked about earlier. Then uh, 2019, a very dear friend of mine, who we worked together in Portugal as missionaries, his son uh, took his own life with drugs laced with fentanyl. Um, And uh, he died in 2019. And then this year, I have... uh, kind of a God nephew who died uh, of a heroin overdose laced with fentanyl. So I celebrate their lives and others come and celebrate the loved one. Then uh, Butch Patrick, who we've been talking about, who is also in recovery. Uh, He, uh, I believe, is celebrating 11 years. And he... um, shared his recovery story and uh, you can go to com and um, see that.
1: And that, that's one of the things that you've taken stuff that's happened to you per personal demons or things that happen to people around you. And you were able to try to help other people get through the problems that they're going through. And I think, a lot of us have relatives that have suffered through um, substance abuse or mental health issues. And the key thing is, is being aware of it and trying to help them and support them, but also hopefully they can get out there and seek help from people that are more in tuned with giving them the need the, the, the support they need.
2: As I try to say, as addicts or alcoholics, we are not bad people we are good people with a bad disease. And one of the purposes of celebrating the lives of those lost and celebrating the lives of those recovered is to take the stigma and the negative aspects of the drug addiction, trying to take the the negativity out of it. And you know, that's what I am dedicating my life to. Uh, I also, however, just finished a uh, a series where I am in one episode and we're waiting to do episode number two, but it's called The Last Evangelist. And I play a bishop. And uh, I've got a very poignant part, a very small part, but a very important part in the story. And it's taking place, I think, in like, 2040, when there's only one religion that is allowed in the United States, and it's called the Last Evangelist.
1: Well, that, that, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I haven't seen I mean, I saw it on your IMDb. I didn't have a chance to, to watch it, you know, so now I know I'm going to seek that out try and watch it before I see you at Monster Bash.
2: Sure. And then I'm going to be at Monster Bash.
1: October 14th to the 16th. And it's one of the. I'm, You've never been there before. I know you're going to have a great time because it's celebrates all the classic monsters. It's a family atmosphere. Um, This summer we had Wesley Yore and Kathy Coleman there from Land of the Lost. They were wonderful. They had a blast um, doing it, and I'm sure you will too. You know, because I think it's nice. You know, when when people are there, you get to see people celebrate all the old fashioned horror. Like I said, I really think you know, mystery and Dracula's castle for a lot of those guys that did the filming when they were boys, they're going to latch on to that movie. And they also show old movies, old clips of your old clips of, or old episodes of TV and that kind of thing. And they'll have Q and A's and it's just, it's just a great time.
2: It'll be fun. Looking forward to it.
1: And I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to join me to, um, talk about Monster Bash and your career and I'm really looking forward to meeting you in in just a little bit of time.
2: I am looking forward to meeting you Stephen and congratulations on your show and uh, thanks for for having me.
1: I hope everybody enjoyed that episode of Johnny Whitaker. I did enjoy talking to him and I'm looking forward to seeing him at Monster Bash. Uh, Just remind everybody that the next episode coming out is going to be a movie discussion, A Hard Day's Night. We're going to be joined by Tom Shabila, who's a fixture at Monster Bash. So he's one of the volunteers there, but he also has directed the film and he's written the book. And we're going to talk about that all in our next episode, which will be coming out in just a few days. And then the episode after that will be my interview with David, the rock Nelson. So that way you guys had a lot of different episodes preparing you for this year's bash. As always, please leave us feedback at DieCastMoviePodcast.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. I think a fun way to end this episode would be a song from Tom Sawyer, Freebootin'. So without further ado, let's end the episode with that nice, fun song. Bye.
3: to shut us in we got no time that fine rolling down the road to sin without no never mind like a big fat cow with chewing on the cut like a catfish grubbing in the bottom of the mud. we're happy as a coot and we don't give a hoot ain't we fine free pootin free pootin <laughs> kicking off our feet in the sand We don't know wrong from right.